Hello, and welcome to Simple Pursuit, the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our prayer that you will grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that you will be blessed and challenged as you listen in. Grab your Bible, because here is today's teaching. All right, if you take your Bible and open to 1 John chapter 3. Why did Christ come? That is the question that we're going to ask this morning and hopefully answer. And really over the, la- the next uh, month, we'll be looking at why did Christ come? If you've ever noticed, I'm sure you have, um, even into It's a Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart, one of my favorite movies, um, Christmas almost doesn't happen, right? It's always the theme of a movie. It doesn't matter what it is. Christmas is not going to happen. One, because Christmas spirit is fading. People quit believing in Santa Claus, blah, 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 blah. Um, and, uh, you know, he fell off the roof, or somebody, folks just quit believing, some other goofy reason. And all of that just points to just the, the, the secular noise of Christmas, the secular noise of advertising, telling us that our Christmas won't happen unless we get this particular product or that particular product. And so this is why I think for me, personally, it is so important to come back in December every year and relive and refocus our hearts on this season of Advent. And to answer this question, why did Christ come? Because it is through remembering why Christ came that we, find, we, we truly find a reason to celebrate and worship. And we find the answer to our problem of sin. So, why did Christ come? Turn to 1 John chapter 3. Not the Gospel of John, but the little letters before Revelation, if you would. 1 John chapter 3. I'm going to read from verses 1 to 10. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let's pray together. Fathers, we come to your word this morning. We acknowledge you as our God of hope. And I pray that you would be our guide 
as we've opened and read from your word. Your word is holy, it is right, it is true. Your word is a lamp for our feet. It is a light for the path of those who hope in Christ. So God, would, as we ask that you speak to us and teach us what we do not know, create a stirring in our hearts that draws us to know you more through the anchor of the soul, our hope, Jesus Christ. Amen. So first and foremost, friends, we're going to actually step out of 1 John chapter 3 for a moment and go to John chapter 17, the gospel to the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And we'll find there, first off, that Jesus came to make the Father known. One of the things about John in his gospel is that he presents very clearly why Jesus came. And he's carried that theme over, that truth over, into his letters to the church. But just to look at the gospel of John quickly, his first priority was to come to make the Father known. At this point, there was sin in, the, in, in everyone's life, and there was very little, um, uh, there's lots of hardship in getting to know God, only by some kind of special revelation, such as Moses at the burning bush, or Isaiah in the vision that he had, or Ezekiel in the vision he had, or someone special like Elijah or Elisha, would, would someone come to know God a little bit, but no one at this point could know God like Jesus, like he was going to make the Father known. It was not a possibility until Jesus came. If you look at verse 6, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. If you go down to verse 25 and to 26, you will also see here toward the closing of his prayer, Jesus says, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Notice in verse 26, he, uh, verse 25 says, even though the world does not know you, I do. Jesus had the authority and the knowledge to come and share exactly who the Father was and to show him to, those, uh, to, to his people. In verse 26, then he declares, I have made known to them your name. What name is that? The I am who I am, Yahweh, that he will be who he will be. And he says, I will continue to make it known. Not only will I continue to make it known, but I will also show them the love with which you have loved me, that it would be in them and I would be in them. What is that love? Well, if we go back even further into John's gospel, chapter 3, verse 16, we understand that love is the sending of the Messiah, the sending of Jesus. For God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The giving and the sending of Jesus. But here in John 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus, we have this moment captured for us where Jesus has prayed that what is coming, what he is about to face, mainly his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, that those approaching events would glorify the son so that the Father would also be glorified through the Son. At the end of the prayer, Jesus wraps it up with this astounding truth. I have made known to them your name. 
and I will continue to make it known. He will continue to make known to the church all that God is, all that God was, all that he will be, and he is going to increase his love in us. Why did Jesus come? To make the Father known. There are other places in Scripture that talk about the reason Jesus came. All right, one of those being to make the Father known. John chapter 14 would be one of those. John's gospel is covered with making the Father known as one of Jesus' primary goals and one of his purposes. But I want to sum up this point this way, that the arrival of Jesus in Bethlehem as a child, once and for all time, brought into view what God is really like. There is a futility, friends, to us trying to make God in our own image. There is no win in that. There is no forgiveness of salvation in that. Because as Jesus appeared, he put to rest and he put to death any false notions of the nature of God. If we want to know what God the Father is like, we look to God the Son. We read the Gospels about him. We find out who Jesus was, who Jesus is, who he will, he will be, and we see there the Father. That's exactly what he told Thomas. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He came and he made him known. And the writer of Hebrews says it this way. In Hebrews chapter 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. We know those prophets. They prophesied about the coming, right? I think it's... Uh, is it Micah? It talks about Jesus being born in Bethlehem. We've got Isaiah and Daniel. We've got all the other prophets, Elijah, Elisha, Samuel, who was a priest, but also served the role as a prophet. We've got all of these Old Testament prophets. I'm leaving out a whole bunch of them. But we've got all of these prophets that God used to speak to his people. But in the last days, these last days in the New Testament, what we find is that God has spoken to his people by his son. His son, therefore, made the Father known by all that he was speaking, all that he was doing while he was here in his ministry. And the writer of Hebrews also continues that he appointed the heir, that, uh, he appointed the heir of all things, that would be Christ, through whom he also created the world. He, that is Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. His mission there, we see in Hebrews chapter 1, is the heir, being the heir of all things, but more than that, speaking to us on behalf of God the Father, that he is the radiance of the glory of God, and we look to the, we look to the Son, who is the exact imprint of the nature of God, that he upholds everything. But here is the purpose for us that he came to make purification for our sins, and then his glory is in the sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. Verse 3 there points us to the other reason. This is why John declares in his letter that there is a problem making purification for sins, that there is a problem which we all have and we all share in, and it is the problem of sin. Jesus came to make his Father known, and part of that knowledge was the holiness and the righteousness of God and his characteristics of who he is, that he is without sin. But in knowing that, we had come to understand that we have a sin problem. John tells us, back to 1 John chapter 3, where we'll camp the rest of our time this morning. John tells us in verse 5 of 1 John chapter 3 that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. 
Friends, Jesus came to deliver us from our sins. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become his righteousness. John has written about this in, a, in, in his short letter previously to chapter three, but here it is, that we are sinners. We have committed sin, sins, it's in our nature. We have a sin nature from the moment we're born. And John writes there in verse four of this very chapter, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And we have this sin issue in our life. And this sin issue in our life does separate us from God. We cannot know him in our sin. We cannot stand before his holy judgment seat and declare ourselves innocent when that day comes. And the plea of ignorance is not going to work either. I just didn't know. The word tells us, yes, you did, because eternity is written on your heart. And as John writes, everyone who makes a practice of sinning practices lawlessness. That makes us criminals. We are lawbreakers. We are thieves. We are liars, swindlers, backstabbers, all of the above. That's a lovely Advent message, isn't it? Light the candles, sing some Christmas carols. We're all criminals. Merry criminal Christmas. But it's true. You've got sin, I've got sin, and we're in trouble. And if you press the truth that Jesus came to take away sin, it obviously means that I've got some sin in my life that he needs to take away and that I need him to take away. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Friends, no one is exempt from that. No one. I don't care who they are. No one is exempt from that. And since the Garden of Eden, it is who we are. And if we are living in sin, then John adds to this that we are practicing lawlessness because sin is lawlessness. We are living outside the lines of God's prescription for holiness, which is the law. That's outdated. Not in the realm of heaven, it's not. Not on the judgment seat. He will judge and he will examine based on his word that he has given us. He is not going to change it. And so the reality is, is that living in lawlessness or practicing sin leads to zero assurance of being right and in a right relationship with God. That person is still in darkness. That person is still at odds with God or at enmity with God. And the lawlessness, the rebellion, the defiant disregard and rejection for God's rule and reign over our lives puts, us in a, puts you and me in a perilous condition. And because our sin is so great, we needed a great rescuer. Friends, the gospel is the only truth in this world that holds, holds out hope for rescue, hope for this condition that we are in. And there is good news. There is good news in verse 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. This was told about him from the very beginning, but flash forward when the angel visits Joseph and tells him the name of Mary's child. You shall name him what? Jesus, for he will take away the sins 
of his people. You know that he appeared. Look at verse 5. You know that he appeared. Friends, if he doesn't appear, we stay the same. We stay in the same helpless condition if he doesn't appear. But he did appear. And if he doesn't go to the cross to die and to receive the wrath of God upon himself, the payment for our sin, we stay the same. But he did appear, and he did die on the cross to take away our sins. Now, if he sins, we're out. If he sinned at least one time, we're done for. It's over. He cannot go to the cross and take our place. And so John includes, and in him, by the way, there is no sin. Luke provides an account of that message given to the angels. Luke chapter 2, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. John gives us that, that uh, different glimpse into Jesus. He doesn't give us the birth narrative, if you'll remember when we walked through John chapter 1, but here he does give us the testimony of John the baptizer when he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the source of our true hope. He is the fulfillment of that hope. In Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still lawless, living in lawlessness, while we were still rejecting the holiness of God, while we were still living in open rebellion to God, Christ died for us. And it isn't the fact that God sent this baby boy in the manger in Bethlehem, but that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That baby in the manger, that nativity scene, might create a beautiful, warm, fuzzy, sentimental feeling, but it is the God-man on the cross that brings life change. He, the God-man, Jesus, qualified to take our sin because of what John said, which is, there is no sin in this man, in this God-man. Now think about that for a moment, if you would, your sin. Put a number to it. All right, I'm going to try to work math. So just, I did okay in algebra. I passed. But simple math. If I committed one sin a day, no laughing, deacons, one sin a day, there are 365 days in a year. Okay, I'm not counting leap years because I wasn't going to go that far. Once in a day, 365 days a year, and I am 46 years old. Do you know how many sins that is? 16,790 sins. Now, for those of you slightly more aged than I, one sin a day, 365 days, 75 years old. You worse off than me. 27,375 sins. Now, let's up the ante here. 10 sins a day. Still probably not real. 365 days times 46 years. 1,667, that's so big I can't even count. 
167,900 sins. Okay, now if we put a real number on front of that, how many that we knowingly or unknowingly commit, because that's going to raise it, I bet. If you put a dollar sign in front of that instead of just a number, put a dollar sign in front of that. I don't have $167,000 laying around to pay off my debt. And if we put a larger number on the amount of sins in a day that we walk around and commit, knowingly or unknowingly, we've got a debt that we cannot pay. But Jesus, with zero sin debt, was able to pay that debt by taking my sin and my punishment upon the cross. That's how he took our sin away. That's how he he made it happen. So how do you answer this question? Have my sins been taken away? If you have trusted in Christ for salvation and the forgiveness of your sin, then your sins have been taken away. But if your response is no, I have not trusted in Christ, then according to the text, you are still in your sin and you are practicing lawlessness. Verse 8 is incredibly strong when it comes to that person. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is what? Is of the devil. Oh, another great Advent message. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to what? Destroy the works of the devil. So there's still hope. There's still hope. Because he came to take away sin. That's the next thing. The third thing he came. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Again, here's another condition for which we and ourselves have zero answers. But there is the one, the hope of the world, the Son of God who appeared, sent to destroy the works of our adversary, of our enemy, Satan. Friends, he is a deceiver. He is a liar. And he smells like beef and cheese. And he sits on the throne of lies. But when Christ Jesus came, he came to defeat the works of the devil. It signaled then that little baby boy in Bethlehem the beginning stages of the destruction of the devil's work. God's people had been waiting for centuries, generation upon generation, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when the snake crusher the Redeemer was promised that he would come and crush the head of the serpent. And now he came, just as promised. He arrives when the fulfillment of time is here. Friends, we battle against the flesh. We battle against an external foe in Satan. In fact, Paul would tell us we don't wage war against the flesh. We wage war against Satan. But I think he's really talking there about we're not waging war against each other, but we do wage war against the sinful flesh we live in. The name of Satan is Hebrew for adversary. And he's a strong adversary. But he's doomed. One of the lies that he will continue to spin to the church is that a person can be born again of Jesus and still live and practice lawlessness and live a sinful life. But John clearly instructs the church in verse 7 when he says, little children. Don't see that as an insult. See it as a father speaking to his children. He cares about you. Little children, let no one deceive you. You know what that means is that that teaching is not new. It was already happening in John's day. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. 
Do not be deceived. What John is telling us is that you cannot be in Christ and living in the world at the same time. It's one or the other, but not both. And so he's urging the church to pursue righteousness. We pursue righteousness. We can pursue righteousness all because Jesus has destroyed the works of Satan. He has destroyed the works of the devil, so therefore pursue righteousness. We can get messed up in the messaging of this world. We can get tripped up because it's easy being confused about the messaging the world is feeding us versus what the word of God feeds us. And when we get confused and tripped up, it can lead to a very serious situation. It is going to lead to a very serious spiritual problem. But John issues this warning by speaking to us like a father. Little children, take heed, take warning. Friends, we can be deceived doctrinally. We can be deceived to believe the wrong thing about God. They walk around our neighborhoods. I hope you will take the opportunity to share the truth with those who walk around our neighborhoods knocking on our doors, wanting you to believe in Jehovah, that you will share the truth about who Jesus really is with them. They are doctrinally wrong about Jesus. And if you're doctrinally wrong about Jesus, you're wrong. You've got the wrong Jesus. We can be deceived morally or living wrongly in a lifestyle of sin. Boy, there are plenty of churches in our nation and around the world that have believed the false doctrine and are deceived morally when it comes to, I can live in my sin because of the love of God. We are called to holiness. We are called to righteousness. We are called to grow in Christ-likeness while we are on this earth. As Christians, it is easy to get tripped up, but as Christians, sin should not dominate our lives. It should not enslave us. It should not be the conduct of my life. Verse 6, John said, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or know him. Verse 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God sees God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. In other words, sin should not be the habit of my life. If you've got a sin that you commit continually more than just tripping up on it occasionally, but you are in it deep, you are abiding in sin and you are not abiding in Christ. John says, then you are not born of God if you make a practice of sinning. Habitually, I can't get away from it. I just got to have it or else my life isn't complete. Sin is not my habit. It should not be my normal practice. We cannot and do not love sin. We must hate sin. I cannot find delight in it. I should despise it. And if you say that you're without sin, here's the other side of that, 1 John chapter 1. If you say that you're without sin, then we make God to be out a liar, is what John says. But we know this in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we've got to make it a daily habit 
to confess and repent and turn away. And if we're caught in that cycle, know that God's grace is there, but there also has to be some kind of accountability. Now, our enemy and our adversary would love nothing more than to see you get tripped up and us as a church get to get tripped up and to get beat up by our sin to keep us down. But listen, we have to remember the truth of what John is telling us. Jesus beat him. He didn't just beat him. He destroyed his works. You don't have to live in sin. Through Christ, you can overcome. Jesus calls us to overcome. To him who overcomes. The head of the serpent is crushed forever. He's finished. The last thing Jesus came to do was to set apart the children of God. One of the issues today um, that we face and especially in John's day, is that somehow, again, you can be a Christian and be righteous without doing what is right. The word says no. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Friends, the hope before us in Christ, the hope realized through faith in Christ, is that we are a new creation, that he makes us brand new, and that we experience this new birth in Jesus, it's what Nicodemus couldn't understand totally until Jesus said, no, Nicodemus, you must be born from above. You must be born again. Friends, to be born again or to be born of God means to be born again. Born from above. It's called regeneration or a new birth. Here's what our doctrinal statement says about regeneration. Regeneration or the new birth is a work of God's grace whereby believers become new creatures in Christ Jesus. It is a change of heart wrought by the Holy Spirit through conviction of sin to which the sinner responds in repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith are inseparable experiences of grace. Repentance is a genuine turning from sin toward God. Faith is the acceptance of Jesus Christ and commitment to the entire personality to him as Lord and Savior. When that happens, John says, God's seed abides, remains in him. So therefore, he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So Jesus came to take away sins, destroy the works of the devil, set believers apart as children of God on a pathway of growing in righteousness, of growing in holiness. And finally, we turn back to chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, where John says, little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him at his coming, from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. That's 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. He has come to prepare his bride for the second advent, a second coming. Jesus came to prepare for a second advent. John calls us to abide or to remain in him. Why? Because if we're remaining in him, God's seed is in us. We grow in righteousness, we grow in holiness, and sin takes a back seat. Friends, we cannot stand on our own. We place our trust and our confidence in Christ alone. When he appears, 
I think of Isaiah, who had the vision of the throne room of God. He hears the angels calling out to one another holy about God's holiness, holy, holy, holy. And you remember there what happens after he hears that. He realizes he's in the presence of a holy God, and he is a man of unclean lips, and he lives amongst the people of unclean lips. He realizes the death sentence that that is, to be in the presence of God with his sin present. By God's grace and his mercy, he sends an angel over to touch Isaiah's lips with a burning coal. His sins there are forgiven at that moment. Ezekiel, a similar situation. Moses was instructed to take off his sandals because he was on holy ground. And when John says there in verse 28, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame. Why would we shrink back from him in shame? Sin. Lawlessness. Why would we stand in confidence? Because he came to take away my sin. Because of Christ. In Christ, our sin is taken away and the works of the devil are destroyed. And we stand in confidence when we trust in Christ. The writer of Hebrews tells us to approach the throne of grace with what? Confidence. Because we've entered through Christ. There is no mistaking of who Christ is and why he came. Verse 2 of chapter 3, John says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. John says, I don't know what we're going to be, but we'll know it when we see it, because we're going to see him. And when he appears, my friends, the journey is over. All who are in Christ will be like him. He is preparing a place for the church, for those who trust him. And if he goes to prepare a place for the church, he will come back for us, will he not? He promised his disciples that. And as surely as Jesus came and was born in Bethlehem, so again he will come this time not as a baby, but as a conquering lion and a lamb that was slain. Why did Jesus Christ come? To defeat the works of the devil. Friend, are you living in light of that victory? I love the way Chris Tomlin worked in a new chorus to Amazing Grace. Man, that was probably 25 years ago now. I don't even know when he wrote that song. My chains are gone. I've been set free. Have you taken that reality of Christ? Is it abiding in you? And are you living in light of that victory? Why did Jesus... Christ come. He came to take away our sins. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power and are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? When he comes, will your robes be white? Because that's why he came. Every head bowed, every eye closed. As we come to our time to respond now, it is my prayer that as you have heard the word and we've been engaging the Lord in worship and prayer this morning, that now, as he has called you, that you would respond in faith. If you have not ever trusted Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord of your life, then today is the day for you. Now is an opportunity for you to trust him and receive him. Thank you for listening today. For more information regarding Coastal Oaks Church, like service times, or what to expect upon your visit, go to our website at coastaloakschurch.org. May God bless you.
Bless you in the journey and the simple pursuit of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord.